right. Nikki, thanks so much for sharing with us about kind of your journey, your encounter with Jesus, and how you've responded to him. Really appreciate you sharing that with us. So, well, welcome 180. I'm glad to be here tonight with you. It's awesome that it's finally fall outside instead of being 90 degrees. You can wear some, finally wear some jeans, you put on your flannel, and just enjoy campus, and you get to enjoy that this weekend at fall retreat. So, hopefully I'll get to spend a lot of time with you all this weekend. Well, tonight we're going to continue on with our series about encountering Jesus. We're really, we're looking specifically at the Gospels and seeing this guy, Jesus, how he lived, what he did, what he said, his death, his resurrection. And we're looking at how different people respond to these encounters with Jesus. And tonight we're going to be looking at some of these, a varied um, list a very kind of section of people's responses to Jesus in Mark chapter 3, so feel free to turn there if you want. Um, before we get there, I was thinking a little bit about different kind of responses I have to different life circumstances. I'm a sports fan, so if you're an Ohio sports fan, this, this past week is really hard, especially if you're a Cleveland fan. There's a lot of different responses, guttural responses I'd have as I'd watch these things. And so that I don't feel alone, I kind of want you to join in a little bit with me. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to list out some different maybe teams and then some people. And what I want you to do is give me uh, what your response, what your immediate response is. Not with words, but with sounds. Okay, so I'm going to give you a team or a name. And I want you to respond with the best sound that represents how you feel towards this team. Or this name, all right? So the first one, the Cleveland Browns. Okay. All right. Um, this one should be easier. The Miami Redhawks. There we go. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll do some people. Taylor Swift. Oh. Uh, Beyonce. All right. Um, we'll, we'll do one more. Justin Bieber. Wow, I heard a lot more guy cheers on that than I thought there would be, but that's all right. Okay. So, you know, we all have different responses, right, to these teams, to these people. There's some intense emotional reaction that we have to them, to them or to those teams. But the most responded to and the most intensely responded to person in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. For 2,000 years, there, well done. For 2,000 years, people have been responding to who Jesus is. And they've responded in a multitude, a varying amount of ways. And we're going to look at some of those tonight. We're going to kind of look at this kaleidoscope of responses of Mark chapter 3. And most of the responses we see are intense, but they're often wrong, where they misunderstand who Jesus is. And because they misunderstand who Jesus is and what he asks of them, they react poorly to him. And they fail to trust him, to believe in him, and to listen to him. But we're also going to see with one glimmer of hope in Mark chapter 3, especially in the calling of the disciples, we're going to, we're going to see that because Jesus calls us to be with him, that we can actually go for him. That because Jesus calls us, we can respond and actually be disciples of the King. So if you would, turn, toward, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. 
And maybe even grab a piece of paper or something, because as I read, maybe you can just make notes. There's this cast of characters that we're going to see. If you're ever to open up a play, probably on one of those first pages, you're going to see a list of all the characters. But a good playwright will also introduce all these characters in a little bit of ways, especially early on in the story. That's what Mark's done. In Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark chapters 1 and 2, we've seen Jesus come on the scene, proclaim the kingdom of God, heal people, and enter in in powerful ways. Now we're seeing different people respond. Uh, right before the passage we're going to look at, we'll start here in Mark chapter uh, 3, verse 6. Right before this, Jesus has just healed a man with a withered hand. And for reasons and complexity I can't all get into, he's actually had this pretty visceral response from a bunch of people. And Mark takes this opportunity to show us all these varied responses to Jesus. So I'm going to start right here. I'm going to start just right in verse 6. Jesus just healed this man. But in verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. These are the first characters in the cast that we see. These are the religious and the political leaders. If we had time, I could describe why these two people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, would be the most unlikely of partners, but they've united against Jesus. They feel threatened by him. Their positions, their power feels threatened. Now these figures that we're going to look at, they can feel so foreign to us. It can feel 2,000 years ago, how does this relate to me now? But what we're going to see is there is an incredible amount of relevance. If we just look and think between these characters and what we experience modern day. These religious and political leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, it says in verse 6, they're seeking to destroy Jesus. Now that is a word. They're not just seeking to put him to death, but they want his name to be slandered. They want him to be mocked. They want him to become a laughingstock, and everyone who believes in him, they want the same. Now we might think that was just back then, but I'd say even over the past 10 years, there's been a proliferation of books written by what's been called some of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, uh, and a lot of them who have written books that are seeking to do this very thing to the name of Jesus and those who would follow him. Some professors have also followed. We see this especially in kind of these power structures of education. One professor at the University of Texas, uh, a few years back, he said, while you're in my class, you're expected to be an agnostic or an atheist. Anyone with sincere religious beliefs will be asked to take off his religious hat. Religion's not allowed here. It's inferior in a place of education. Another professor at Southeastern College, a philosophy professor, said, forget everything you learned about the New Testament. Jesus was a homosexual and a magician. Not just saying some of these things might not be true, but almost making a mockery of the faith. See, these people intensely hate Jesus, so they intentionally seek to hurt him. And I think it might be true for you and me. If we follow Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised when people want to intellectually and socially crucify us. They don't just want us silent. They want our faith to be made fun of, to be made a mockery of. And even in some places, people are put in physical harm. So these, these people of this cast is still true a little bit today. So that's just the first cast of characters that come on the scene, these political leaders who want to destroy Jesus. They intensely hate him. So they intentionally seek to hurt him and his followers. 
But in the midst, Jesus knows they're seeking to destroy him. So Jesus withdraws as he often does. Verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and this great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, it might, this might seem something like a positive thing, right? Jesus has these people seeking to kill him. Jesus wants to pull away. He's like, man, I, I just kind of want to get away, and I want to get away with my disciples, so he often pulls away to the sea. But as soon as he shows up, it's like paparazzi on the scene. Wherever Jesus goes, there's cameras flashing, and people are in his face. And they have these real needs. They have real desires to have these needs met. But they keep pushing against Jesus and pushing against him on the shoreline. So much he's like, hey, guys, get me a boat. They will crush me. One of my favorite bands uh, a few years ago, they were playing this pretty large festival over in Europe. And the crowds became so rowdy and so excited for the music and so wanting to get that front row seat that actually nine people at this music festival were crushed to death in a stampede. That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is saying, people so intensely want things from me that they're going to unintentionally hurt me. They so want something from me, but they've forgotten that I'm actually a real being, that I'm a real person. They're coming to me and they want something, but they don't realize who I am. They want something from Jesus, but they care nothing for Jesus. Now, that might feel like it's just back then, but I don't think so. I mean, I think if I flip on the TV and I watch a sporting event, I'm going to see some athletes. I'm going to see athletes after a touchdown, they, they're going to, they get down on a knee and seem to pray. Others will say, well, I just thank God for the gifts that I've been given. Now, some of them are, some of them are genuine. Some of them for real. But some of them like to flash some of those things out there so that there's this PR vision of who they are, that I'm a Christian, therefore I can get some extra speaking engagements on the side. Maybe they'll put me in advertisements if I look like a good person in these ways. So athletes do this. Politicians do this. Right? They want something from Jesus, but they care nothing about him. Because when it becomes election time, on both sides of the aisle, no matter what side you're on or where you're at, all of a sudden, every four years, they start parading around their Christianity, their beliefs in Jesus, and they pander to us because they want something from Jesus, but they care nothing about him. I think also musicians. I mean, it's hard to be a band, and it would be hard to make money, but a lot of bands have kind of found this slick way to make sure they get some good listens. And that's to slap the name Christian on the front. Hey, we're a Christian band. And when I'm a Christian band, that means I get certain Christian gigs and I get to make money for proclaiming the name of Christ. And yet, I've heard story after story some from some friends in the Christian music industry that say you would not believe what goes on on the bus after the show. Men and women who up front are praying and praising and yet on the bus would look nothing like, a, look like nothing that 
would look like a fulfilling relationship with Jesus. Drinking, drugs, infidelity. See, there's people that want a reputation. They want a position and they want some privilege from being around Jesus, but they care nothing about him. I mean, actually, in verse 20, we'll get ahead there a little bit, they're so pressing around Jesus that he doesn't even have time to eat. Does that sound like people that care about him? I don't think so. But then we see this next cast of characters. I mean, Mark just keeps them coming. The next cast is these unclean spirits. So you have the crowds pressing around him. He's about ready to get on a boat. And now these unclean spirits see Jesus, and they fall down before him, and they cry out, You're the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. They're making these, these are demons. Now, what's interesting is they actually have some real insight into Jesus' person and his power, who he actually is. But they're making a scene about it. In some sort of way, they actually want to control Jesus. They want to manipulate what he's doing. So when these demons are crying out, you are the son of God, it's, it's not in worship. It's recognition, but it's not worship. And there's some of us who have recognized Jesus, but we refuse to worship him, and maybe we even oppose him. A few years ago, I was having a, a conversation, getting to share the gospel uh, with someone close to me. As I shared with her more and more who Jesus was and what he did, she said, yeah, yeah, I believe all these things, but... I'm afraid if I believe in Jesus, he's going to do something to my life. That's a little bit what's going on here is this sense of, I recognize who Jesus is, but I don't want him to be king over me. And I'm not going to bow my knee to him. The next cast of characters. So we got these uh, religious political leaders. We got these crowds. We got these unclean spirits. Then, in verses 13, we'll get to them later. We have the disciples who Jesus calls to him. It's right in the middle. We're going to come back to them. But right after we see the disciples, starting in verse 20, it says Jesus goes home finally. But again, the crowds gather together. They're pushing in around him so that he can't even eat. He's tired. He's exhausted. But when Jesus' family hears it, they go out to seize him. And notice why they seize him. They're saying he's out of his mind. This is Jesus' family. This is his mom and his brothers and his closest relatives. And they're saying, hey, listen, this guy is tired. You crowd, you won't leave him alone. You won't even let him rest. You won't even let him eat. Of course he's exhausted. And of course he's saying crazy things. Of course he's saying things out of his mind because he can't get away from you. So in a way, it's like they're wanting to put their hand around Jesus' mouth, pull him inside so that others can't see who he is. See, his family, they're associating with Jesus, but often they're embarrassed by him. They're associated with Jesus, but they're embarrassed by Jesus. When Jesus was turning water into wine at the wedding, his mom was saying, keep doing it, keep doing it. And yet here, when he starts to do things that really challenge people's thoughts, and they're thinking about who God is, they say, ah, oh, this is too dangerous. This is too much. Jesus, you've overstepped. You're getting a little crazy. Come inside. Now, have you ever kind of experienced that? 
My dad, for the longest time, thought when I started to follow Jesus, and when I actually started to do things for Jesus, like going on a summer mission or going overseas for a year, he didn't quite think I was like clinically insane, but he definitely thought I was crazy. Jason, how, why would you turn down a computer engineering degree? Like, why wouldn't you use that and make a bunch of money? Why would you go ask people for support to be this kind of random, like, kind of traveling college pastor-ish kind of thing? He just couldn't get it. It seemed crazy to him. See, Jesus' family and following Jesus, uh, the people are going to respond differently to us, but I think we're also going to respond differently to him. See, at times, I think we kind of respond like Jesus' family. See, when Jesus is talking about love and forgiveness and eternal life, we're like, yes, serving the poor, sign me up, Jesus. You're so good. You're so great. But when Jesus starts to talk about heaven and hell or sin or sacrifice in our lives to follow him, we kind of want to put our hands over Jesus' mouth and say, no, no, no. Like, we, we want to take the scriptures and we kind of want to manipulate them so that Jesus isn't actually who he, sh- who he is as we see him here. Do you want to... They don't associate with Jesus, but they're, they're often embarrassed by Jesus. Now, the next group that we see, we're just going to keep going. We have these, again, we, yeah, we saw the crowds, couldn't even eat. His family saying he's out of his mind. Now we see this next group here. These scribes come in. There's some more religious leaders. And verse 22 says, The scribes come down from Jerusalem. They were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. See, these scribes travel down because they're hearing all these things about who Jesus is and how he's been at work. They even heard about some of these miraculous stories of people that have been tied up for their whole life, involved with some sort of demonic possession, and Jesus heals them. He overcomes evil, and yet they say, no, 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 no. Yeah, sure, he's overcoming evil, but he's doing it by evil. It's by Satan himself by the prince of demons. That's how Jesus is casting these things out. Now that might feel like we don't have anybody that's like this today. We'd have no one that would say Jesus is associated with demons. That'd be pretty rare. But there'd be a whole lot of people who would say that religion, and especially Christianity, is a kind of evil. That Somehow what Christianity is and what it does is is wrong. It's the source of war and awfulness in society. Here people aren't just intellectually or logically opposed to Christianity or who Jesus is. They actually think it's immoral, that it's wrong. Here's the thing. I understand. Because this is where I once was. Especially in high school. I kind of saw some people with some religious beliefs, maybe some Christian background. And I thought, you know what? That's just foolish. Like, that's an immature, unenlightened way to think. That's like Stone Ages. And you know what's caused all these problems? What you really need to do is you really just need to mature and evolve. And once you mature and evolve in your thinking, then you don't need Jesus anymore. You don't need religion anymore. 
And you know what? Not just me have thought that. Whole societies have thought this. That, man, if we can just move on from religion and specifically move on from Christianity, the world would be a better, more peaceful, happier place. And yet what's incredible is some of these societies that have actually moved on from all religious belief, in the 1900s alone, there was 110 to upwards of 170 million people who died in nations and states who abolished religious belief. Atheistic countries and states. Mao, Pol Pot, Lenin, Stalin. They had said, we need to evolve to a religionless society. And yet they put to death more people in that short period of time than the previous 1,900 years of any kind of religious war. That doesn't sound evolved or mature to me. Now, certainly, Christians have been implicated in a whole bunch of evil and have wrongly fought different wars. But at very least, we're on similar grounds. There's no high ground of not having belief. But what actually shows me is that with all of us, there's some sort of deeper problem going on. That religion in itself is not the problem. Christianity itself is not the problem. But there's a deeper, deeper, more primal, more instinctual problem, and that's sin. This longing and desire to be like God himself. And what we need is not less religion. Actually, we need more of Christ. The one guy who comes on the scene and says, I reveal God. And what does he do at the end of his life? He actually sacrifices himself on a cross. Taking violence upon himself, not doling it out. So the problem for us, and thinking about this uh, evil, is not trying to get rid of Christianity. It's actually diving deeper into the founder of who Christianity is founded on, to Jesus Christ himself. We don't need less. We actually need more genuine faith. Now, I would say, like in high school, I had those beliefs I was not a Christ follower. But as I started to come to faith, I started to see there's more to the picture. And some of you might not be followers of Jesus. And some of these things I said, you might say, actually, yeah, I've responded in similar ways. We're going to look here in a few minutes about what actually is the core of who Jesus is and the discipleship he calls us to. But I'd also say if we're believers... It'd be easy to just to move, move past this and say, hey, I'm glad I'm not one of those. I'm glad I'm one of these disciples. But I wonder a little bit, at times, if we're like the crowd, that we intensely want something from Jesus, but we actually don't care about Jesus. That we forget about his affection and his love and his care for us. You might say, how is that? Well, I wonder a little bit who here feels like they have some pretty big decisions that they would like answers from the Lord on. Anybody? Yes, right? We want decisions. We want answers. But sometimes we treat God like this cosmic vending machine, and we just keep coming to him, and we keep pounding the button saying, God, give me the answer to what I'm supposed to do. Give me the answer. Give me the answer. And we become so intensely focused on what we want from Jesus we unintentionally ignore what Jesus wants for us. What we're going to see here in a few moments, which is to be with him in relationship and to be refined by him. Now, I wonder who in here has ever had questions, maybe like, I wonder who my spouse is going to be. Lord, would you please provide me a pretty awesome spouse? 
Yeah, no one in the room is raising their hand, right? Because it feels a little embarrassing. But if you did raise your hand, maybe you can look around the room and say, hey, we should hang out later. No, that's not what you should do. <laughs> Don't do that. But sometimes, because I've experienced in my life, we so want the boyfriend, we so want the girlfriend, we say, God, give it to me, God, give it to me. That we so want the end product that we've forgotten the process of being with Jesus in relationship through that time. And some of the most refining, powerful times of my life has been when I've been praying and waiting for him. Not just waiting to press the button and out comes my girlfriend. But instead, I'm becoming more and more like who Jesus created me to be as I press into him. And I wonder at times if we're a little bit like his family. Where Jesus, we love being around him and we love being here. But sometimes he's just too embarrassing for us to talk about. Have you ever felt that way? Like, man, I, I love him. But when I start to share with others about how he's at work and who he is, I just feel, I feel embarrassed. I don't like some of the challenge that Jesus brings. I don't like that he calls people to make a decision about him. So we kind of, instead of putting our hands around Jesus' mouth, we put them up to ours. Say, yeah, I'm just not going to talk about him. See, there's a few different ways that we can respond to Jesus. But right smack in the middle of all these reactions and all these responses is the disciples. And here we're going to see the core of what Jesus wants. And it's amazing, and it's beautiful what Jesus wants from me and what he wants from you. See, in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed these 12 men so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So I want to look at some of these things. See, says he desires them. Then it says he wants them to be with him. And then it says he wants to give them authority to preach and to have power. And he calls 12 of them. These are amazing things. This is what Jesus actually wants for us. He wants us to respond as disciples in faith. And he says the reason he calls you and me to follow him is because he wants you. It's because he desires you. Do you realize that that's true? That your relationship with God does not start with you, it starts with Him. Him entering and saying, you know who I want to be with me? It's you. You don't need to apply. This is not a PhD program. This is not an internship. You don't need your resume and cover letter and credentials. I don't want any of that stuff. What I want is you because I've made you and I love you. And not only do I want you, I want you to be with me. This is what discipleship is, to be loved and cared for by God. It's the purpose and pleasure of his will for you to be with him. He wants us to be near him, to experience him, to learn from him, to be changed by him. This is not just something that's good for you. It's not just healthy for you. There's something unique about you, about who you are and how he's made you, that he just enjoys you. Do you know that Jesus loves you? And Jesus likes you. He likes to be around you. He likes who you are. He enjoys fellowship with you. 
This pretty cool passage in Zephaniah 3.17, hidden in the uh, prophets in your Old Testament, says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. That's what Jesus thinks of you. When he goes to the cross for you, this is what he thinks. He delights in you, rejoices in you. Uh, This past week, uh, I went to Indianapolis for a few days. I had some meetings about some global missions things, some pretty cool initiatives that crew has and going to some of these overseas locations. Then after that, I went up to mid-Michigan and spent some, some time with some students from, um, mid, uh, from Central Michigan University. I got to be at their fall retreat. But it means I was, a, I was away for quite a few days. But as I pulled on my house, one of the favorite moments of my day started to happen. And it was even more intense because I'd been gone. As I pull up my car and I get out the door, against, pressed against our glass screen door are three faces. Maddie, Caleb, and Gabby. And as I walk down our steps, I hear them saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And they're like, my little one Gabby is just squealing with delight. And my favorite moment of my day is to open up that door and they wrap their arms around me in love and I get to embrace them. Now, throughout the day before I arrived, they had utterly destroyed our house, <laughs> eaten none of their lunch, fought over numerous toys. But at that moment, all I cared about was getting to be with them. There's nothing those three can do that I'm not capable of or able to do myself. They add no value in a pure, practical standpoint. In fact, they hinder lots of things. They make for a less smooth, tidy, clean life. But I love being with them and being around them. That's what Jesus feels like towards you. He loves when you come and wrap your arms around him because he just wants to be with you. Not because of what you bring to him, not because of what you do for him, but because he's made you and he's chosen you. And he's gone to the cross for you. And this is the foundation of discipleship. This is how we would respond, is to be with Jesus. Respond to his calling. And then as we spend time with him, he actually sends us out on a mission. He gives them power to preach and to have authority. There's real ministry. And it's once we've been with Jesus and felt so intensely loved by him that we will intentionally be with Jesus and go for Jesus because we know who he really is and what he really wants for us. So we're going to go and tell others about him. You remember Jesus' family members? They wanted to stop him from speaking. But now these disciples, Jesus says, go out and speak for me. You and I are called to be Jesus' new family, oriented around him, And out of the overflow of his love for us, we actually tell others. We're no longer embarrassed. We tell others of the overflowing, magnificent love and grace that Jesus has for us. The reason he went to the cross. And we live our lives with this power, this weightiness to our life that leaves imprints no matter where we go. Imprints of the kingdom of God changing who we are. 
And what's unique is when Jesus calls them to the mountain, he doesn't call them one by one. He calls them as a community. And this number 12, it's not a random number. There's 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament oriented around the Old Covenant. And yet now, Jesus is reconstituting, remaking a people of God whose center is himself. You and I are the new people of God, introduced into his family because of what he's done for us. And he calls us to be with him together, to enjoy him together, and to go for him together in community. So for you, do you know these things, that you're loved by Jesus, that he's chosen you, and that he's equipped you to go for him because he's placed you in a community like this? When I think of these 12, I kind of picture in my head one of my favorite movies, Lord of the Rings, right, where they're all gathered together in Rivendell, and they've had this kind of majestic, almost magical experience together, and then they're sent out on a mission the fellowship of the ring. They've been given a purpose. They've been given a mission at a majestic, momentous time, and they go together. That's what God is calling you and me to do. And I think of some men where I've seen this become true. Uh, back my internship year, I was leading a Bible study in Tiffin Hall, and originally there was three guys that came out there's a guy, Riley, who just begun his relationship with the Lord. A guy, Paul, who just trusted Christ at the end of his senior year of high school and come to OU. And there's another guy, Nick. Nick was not a believer, but I got to meet with Nick through a contact card. He came to 180 a few times. After the second 180, he and I walked to that garden right here behind 180, or behind 201. It's kind of a hidden little place. I shared the gospel with him, and Nick came to Christ. Now, Riley, Nick, and Paul, they were one of the few that started to come to Bible study. Paul's on the right, Nick's second from the right, Riley's right in the middle. Just three guys coming to our Bible study, but we were trying to be with Jesus and love Jesus together, so we would regularly meet, we'd pray together, we'd play together, we didn't eat together. Every Wednesday at 5.30, I would meet them, we would pray for each other, and then we'd pray for people in Tiffin Hall who didn't know Jesus. We'd pray for some of their friends by name, and after half an hour, we'd go eat in the dining hall. They swiped me in, which was awesome. Uh, benefits of being an intern. And then about halfway through the semester, we realized, like, man, this is awesome. We want more people to come with us. We want to go out for Jesus because of the way he's loved us and the way we've experienced his love in this community. So we did an outreach. We just kind of handed out some questionnaires in the dorm, said, hey, what do you think about God? What do you think about Jesus? What do you think happens after death? We handed them these half sheets of paper. They went by faith to everyone on their dorm, handed them out, said, hey, if you'd be willing for a Bible study just to fill these out, that'd be great. And there, there's a place if you'd want to come to a Bible study, there's a place you can say yes. So they went by faith to their dorm. All these men and women, or men, it was men's Bible study, all these men fill out this questionnaire. And the next Tuesday, we prayed, and then we actually invited guys to a Bible study. And these two guys on the left, Bruce and Dustin, came to the Bible study. At Bible study that night, Bruce placed his faith in Christ as I we got to share the gospel with him. This other guy, Dustin, he come and uh, just the way he was responding, it seemed like he had some church background. So he actually came back to Bible study the next week and I said, hey, Dustin, just wondering, you know, like, how, how long have you been walking with Jesus? He said, well, um, 
a week since last week at Bible study, I placed my faith in Christ. Dustin was a punk. He would make fun of these guys for their faith. He would come eat with us, but he was kind of this cool, athletic, like just kind of making fun of people for their faith. Yet Dustin's life was radically changed in this community. And these guys continued to pray together. They'd play together. They'd eat together. They'd go on mission together. They went on some summer missions together. And then uh, Dustin ended up leading a community group of his own. And in the midst of this community was this guy, Ryan Jensen. Ryan came to school, and he started on fire walking for the Lord. He had an education background. So Ryan finished with his education, or with his business degree, but got a master's, being able to teach English as a second language. He and his wife now went to East Asia to share the gospel, who really have no opportunity to hear about Jesus otherwise. Dustin, also part of this community, was this guy, Austin Ross, who married his wife, Audrey. They decided after graduation, after all they'd experienced here, to go over to join the staff of Creel, and they went to one of the most intense places in the world, a mostly Muslim community, where it get down to about negative 20 to negative 40 degrees during the winter. But they went there because they wanted people to hear about Jesus. Another guy in this community of these men who prayed together, who were loved by Jesus and went out for him, is this guy, Jacob Wershing. Jacob graduated from here, and he's now at Central Michigan University trying to see something like this happen in a movement where that really hadn't been seen before. There's another guy, Justin Ross, here on the right, brother of Austin. He went to seminary, and he's, his wife, Leah, is right there. Justin's white, Leah's black. So he started to engage in some of the racial tension that's going on and how the gospel changes those things. So Justin is now a pastor at a church in Cleveland trying to figure out how do you do racial reconciliation on the basis of the gospel. And our friends Aaron and Katie Golby, they have a picture with them who went to Slovenia. And another guy, and this is this guy Ty Komiati, who is part of this community. These guys loved one another, prayed together, played together. And after graduation, Ty interned here. He worked on South Green. And then as he married his beautiful wife, Carrie, he decided to join the traveling team. And as the traveling team, he and his wife went all around the country, living in a bus, sleeping on people's couches, but coming to meetings like this to tell people about how there's those all around the world who don't even, they don't just reject Jesus, but they don't even have an opportunity to love him. They don't even get a chance to hear the gospel and to respond. See, these men were a community, a group of disciples called out by Jesus who responded to his love and with prayer and love and grace towards one another became men who changed the world. And that all came from right here. And that's what God is challenging you. He's challenging you to believe that he loves you, that he's called you, that he's empowering you in the midst of this community to make an eternal difference around the world. So let me pray for you that you could respond to Jesus in faith and follow as his disciple. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word and the ways we get to see all these different reactions to Jesus. And Lord, we pray we wouldn't be like the crowds. We pray we wouldn't be like Jesus' family who are embarrassed by him or just want things from him. Lord, would we know that we are called to be your disciples, loved by you, to be with you, and to be sent out by you together in a community. And I pray you'd even do that tonight and throughout this weekend as we gather together for fall retreat. Lord, would you lead us in faith in the name of Christ. Amen.